From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Thanks for tuning in to Terra Informa. I'm Lauren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we have an interview with Gail Anderson Dargatz, the author of The Spawning Grounds. The Spawning Grounds is a novel released in 2016 about a river that's dried up to a trickle, leaving salmon unable to get to their spawning grounds. We have a piece on the environmental writing of two American writers during the conservation movement, and we have an interview with one of the co-authors of The Oil Road, a travel log about the BP pipeline that runs from Central Asia to the Mediterranean. Now let's listen to the interview with Gail Anderson Dargatz, brought to us by Aaron Carter. Today, I'm talking to Gail Anderson Dargatz, an author whose first book was a Giller finalist. But today, we're talking about the release of her new novel, The Spawning Grounds, which is currently on a bunch of lists of great books. Gail, can you tell us a little bit about the premise of your new novel? I was interested in a lot of things with this book. I I was interested in in boundaries, and I think you see that throughout the novel. Um, Boundaries between our real world and our imagined or fictional world, the stories that we tell. And, of course, between you know, our so-called settler and First Nations cultures, uh, between ourselves and our natural environment, uh, and between, um, I guess it comes down to how our worldviews affect how we interact both with the natural world and with, say, mental health issues and matters of culture. So I was interested in those boundary lines and how they manifest and how they're very fluid and they change. Uh, depending on your life experience and where you are and who you're with and so on. So those are the things I was really interested in this book. Um, I, I set it back in the Shishwap Thompson, which is my home country, and I live here now. And uh, I think through all my books, uh, people who read my books will recognize that that landscape is very often a character in my work. And in this book, I took that a step further, and the landscape actually manifests as a living, breathing boy in the, in the book who has an agenda and wants to protect its own. So that uh, landscape comes right to the forefront in this, in this novel. What got you interested in um, writing about the landscape as a character? Uh, well, I, I'm, I've always been in love with the Shishwap Thompson, and uh, you know, I, I teach fiction, and uh, one of the things we often talk about in my workshops or in my you know, one-on-one mentorships with writers is how our environment really is a character. And, of course, for many writers who work within a given landscape, it does uh, become a character. I'm just about to go to the Vancouver Writers' Fest, and that's actually a panel that I'm on. It's, it's a place as character. So uh, certainly for a great many writers, that's uh, how we um, approach uh, a given landscape and how we write about it. Uh, with this one, I was interested in a lot of different stories. The, the underlying story is the Fisher, Fisher King story, where there's an old infertile king who um, no longer serves his kingdom, and as a consequence, the landscape around him fails and becomes a wasteland. So that's a very old 
ancient story, um, and I I wanted to apply that to my Shuswap taunts and landscapes. So I searched around for stories that were already here, and many of them were I was already familiar with. Uh, there's a Shuswap story of the last salmon boy, and that was one story I worked with. I also worked with um, other stories about uh, water spirits or water mysteries from other cultures as well. So uh, I pulled from many different sources to write about uh, this landscape. And uh, my husband is a photographer, and uh, he uh, took me around to various uh, spots in the Shuswap Thompson. And uh, I think most of us get very, uh, we get used to our landscape, and we, we stop really seeing it. And he helped me to see it all over again and see the magic that was inherent in that landscape. So uh, his image has hugely influenced uh, this book, and you'll see them on my website. Yeah, that kind of leads, um, the idea that we sort of stop seeing the landscapes around us kind of leads into another one of my questions, because I noticed when I was reading through your blog posts, you'd mentioned that you moved away from the area that you were sort of writing about um, in order to write about it better. Is that correct? Well, I've always written about the Shuswap Thompson. Um, I do have uh, a few books that I haven't set here, largely my literacy learner books. But for the most part, my literary novels have been set in the Shuswap Thompson. But I do spend uh, summers on Manitoulin Island where um, my husband and I host a writing camp or a writing retreat. And I, I find that it's much easier to write about my home landscape um, on Manitoulin because, of course, uh, as a fiction writer, I need to be free to imagine that landscape, and it's much easier to do that when I'm away from it. So I, I think many writers often uh, do writing in a different location, and you'll see a lot of writers have a uh, lifestyle where they're living in two places. Um, uh, that's a hard thing to do because, of course, writers generally don't have a lot of money. But <laughs> uh, we live, you know, humbly and uh, and focus on experience. So we very often have uh, uh, two places that we live, and that's uh, a lifestyle that served me quite well. Yeah, that's fascinating, the idea that you'd have to sort of move away from a place in order to access it in your mind better. That's really fascinating to me, because I would think that you should be living in the place, that it might be easier to live in the place that you write about, because then you can see all the details immediately. Well, most writers uh, recognize that um, reality gets in your way hmm. when you're writing fiction, and it's one of the constants that I work with, the writers I, I work with. Uh, on is uh, helping them to find ways to leave reality behind, whether they're working from personal stories or they're working within a given landscape, working from newspaper stories, working from history. Um, whatever research they do, um, I help them to be inspired by that, but then to run away from it because reality in any form really does limit uh, fiction. And uh, it's, it's uh, something that we all have to learn, too, is just to let go and let the story go where it wants to, and let the characters take over and uh, take you by the hand and, and tell you where the story wants to go. All right, so what was the writing process of this book like? Was there anything especially challenging about it in form or content or anything? Well, this novel took me nine years to write. Uh, it, it wasn't so much that it was a challenge to, to write. Uh, I, I really wanted more time. Uh, life got in the way. I hit my 40s and... and as it 
as is the case for, I think, most people in their 40s, a lot of life happens. I, I lost uh, both my parents, and I had my children late at 38 and 40, and uh, divorced and remarried and, and took on two wonderful stepkids. And, you know, it was one thing after another. I also uh, started teaching in an MFA program as well. And so there was less and less time in the day to just sit down and write. But I did find, you know, an hour a day to work on, on this novel. Um, I think in, in the future, you know, I've, I've started my next project, of course, and I think in the future the books will come out much faster. It's um, very often just a case that life gets in the way. You write a little bit about one of the effects um, of, I guess, climate change and arguably just the human pr- humans on this earth is that um, 2016 had the lowest count of returning salmon on record. So I'm wondering, was writing about that, the present, and also, like, was that depressing to write about? A depressing thing to um, to face and then to represent is just this environmental travesty that's happening? Well, I wouldn't represent this book as, uh, in, you know, an environmental book in, in a sense. I, I think it's a mistake to walk into any narrative with the message. Um, having said that, I was uh, very concerned with uh, how, how my landscape was hurting. And uh, I did want to give it voice. I did want to give these problems voice. I've, I've been here long enough, I'm in my early 50s now, that I've watched uh, the environment slowly erode. And and it's speeding up. Uh, that uh, erosion is happening very, very quickly. So you do see my own personal grief over the loss of that environment, which is a very personal grief for me uh, in this book. Um, in terms of a, a depressing story, though, I, 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 don't, I don't believe that we've lost hope. I think that we're very... Uh, a species that's very capable and full of imagination, and we can turn things around very, very quickly if we choose to, but it comes down to choosing to. And uh, I think we're very slow on the uptake there. I think we need to really think about what we're doing to our own environment and really think about what we can do personally to change that. And when we do that in a real way, uh, we can turn things around very quickly. And I think your book reflects that philosophy and that hope that you have. I mean, yeah. the philosophy that individuals can help out quite a bit, since some, some of your characters do help out quite a bit. Well, certainly. But I think, it, I think it means a change in how we view our environment. If we have the worldview where our environment is something that we can use and abuse, then we will. If we view our environment as sacred and perhaps even something to be feared, as many of our ancestors did, and certainly many cultures still do, then we will treat it with reverence and respect. And uh, I, I don't know that we can make that leap uh, to seeing the environment as a sacred and alive, um, you know, a, a spirit. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's something that we have to at least step towards, but it will be a big challenge for any of us who are raised in a Western worldview. Yeah, that's a that's a giant project. Yeah. Um, I don't suppose you have any thoughts because I, I guess, I'm guessing you must have sort of embarked on that project yourself to reconceptualize the land instead of being something to be used to be a more spiritual thing. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like for you? Did it involve writing or? 
Well, again, I was, uh, I didn't step into this book with a specific agenda, but I was interested in the questions that we've been uh, discussing, you know, how, how our own worldview affects how we treat the environment around us, how, how we treat other cultures, and also how we treat uh, issues of mental illness. Those were the, the three themes that I was working on in this book. And I, I didn't come up with any specific answers. I just put them on the table for the reader to contemplate and come up with their own answers. And, of course, as a fiction writer, that's, that's all I ever hope to do. I'd like to know a little bit more about um, your thoughts on the commercial versus the literary, because on your blog I was reading, I guess I'll just read a quote that you had. Um, you said, I've started to incorporate elements of the commercial into my literary writing to quit being earnest, um, to quit being so literary. So I'm just really interested in um, how you would characterize this book as commercial, as literary, as a mixture of the two. I think most readers don't really care what box we put uh, a book in as long as it's well-written and engaging. Uh, I think it's the gatekeepers who care more about what label we put on a book. It's, it's how it's marketed, and booksellers often really need uh, the marketing label. Um, I, I have run into the occasional reviewer who hasn't really known what to make of my writing because I do play with uh, elements of uh, many different genres in my fiction while still maintaining a literary uh, standard to the writing. And I do that because I think readers are interested in a good story more than anything. And I, we're seeing that um, most, uh, um, you know, profoundly in the uprising of uh, uh, self-published books that are uh, perhaps not the best written books, uh, but that have a really good, really engaging, fast-paced story. And again, in the end, that's what readers want. So... Uh, so I've, I'm also interested now in this point in my career in playing. Uh, I like mashups. Uh, you know, the 20-somethings are much more responsive to a mashup of, uh, you know, a romance, a thriller, uh, literary writing, uh, magic realism, fantasy, and throwing it all in a pot and seeing what you come up with and have fun with it. And that's really my goal moving forward with my own writing is to uh, be a lot more playful in the writing. I started out as a humor writer, and uh, my first book was up for the C Stephen Leacock Award. And I think that uh, moving ahead, I'll also look into incorporating a lot more humor into my own writing. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for talking with me. I hope you have a wonderful day. Oh, thank you. If you're just tuning in, that was an interview with Gail Anderson Dargatz, the author of the newly released book called The Spotting Grounds. Next, let's go to an archive piece by Chris Chengin Phillips from 2015 as he goes snowshoeing with some ecology grad students and discusses two American environmental writers. I read uh, something from it. Wasn't the sound count the almanac? It was something shorter. In like school. The land ethic? Is that another yeah, yeah, yeah. Or was that just a subject? Subject. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the land ethic was a subject in his book, and it was really the probably the most important idea that he introduced in that book which really extended ethics to the natural world. It was the first time it was ever done um, to actually, you know, say that a, a community is not just a community of humans, but a community of all the living creatures, the soils, um, and the productive capacity of the land. And extending values to those 
the entities in as much as they sustain us, but for also their inherent value too. So, How did you get to reading that? Coming from Wisconsin, in the environmental program I um, started out in, Leopold was often referenced because of his upbringing in the state and because in his book he often used, for example, creatures you know, from, from the regional eco- ecological community. And so it was just part of the curriculum in, in my environmental education. But in reading him more kind of outside of that curriculum, it, it really kind of dawned on me that th- this, was, this was an enjoyable thing beyond just learning facts and figures about nature, but finding a relationship in a kind of um, a poetic way, a, a narrative with which to view it. So a mixture of kind of, I don't know, poetry and, and, and science in a sense. Now, which book were you guys saying that you hated? Well, I didn't hate. I can't remember the title. It was John Muir, and like he's <laughs> he's like the father of conservation, I think. Yeah. Most of what I remember from this stuff is from Scott Nielsen's class. He founded the U.S. Sierra Club, right? That's that right. That sounds right. Yeah, but he's just his writing is very prosy and flowery, and it's I think it's just a generational thing. I just had a lot of trouble getting yeah. through it, and I had to put it down. But that's funny because all of Leopold is also not of our generation. That, that is interesting yeah. too. Um, you know, he was he was a little bit more recent. I think that might have played into it and did have an academic background. You know, Muir was a big fan of the Transcendental Writers. He, he, he met Emerson at one point when they were in Yosemite and the young Muir, full of life and enthusiasm, who had such zeal to go camping for two weeks straight in the Sierras and bring nothing but a little hunk of bread and some tea, saw Emerson, who came by in a carriage, you know, led by a horse with some prominent Washington, uh, D.C. folks, and, and tried to encourage Emerson to come out with him and come experience the land and come to the cathedral forest. And in leaving, was so disappointed that Emerson wouldn't, kind of budge in his old rigidity that he won't come out and experience with him and it, you know Muir I think understood why in a sense but it was also really disappointed after after leaving that interaction so maybe you know his connection to the transcendental writers might have played into his writing style too feel free to quote Paul on everything he knows what he's talking about I'm reaching back to memories from like second year of university which was very long <laughs> yeah I think I think I read some of this stuff like four years ago too. Yeah, it's it's mad fuzzy. <laughs> there, there was something really intriguing I feel about John Muir, and uh, there's a and and it's and it comes back to a common linkage between both him and Aldo Leopold. Both of them actually had quite roots in my home state, Wisconsin. John Muir, a Scottish immigrant who came over at age five with a stern um, father who was a minister of Calvinism. Uh, grew up in the state, down in the Baraboo region, which is an area of rolling hills and pine forests. After he studied at Madison, he went out to do a number of pursuits, odd jobs, what have you. Ended up years later in San Francisco and finally took a trip out to the Sierra Nevadas, out to what at the time was not Yosemite National Park, but would soon be under his efforts. 
when he got there, he, he found a landscape that was so big and so grand that it was almost intimidating for him coming from his background of these soft rolling hills in the state of Wisconsin with small trees, where instead he found huge mountains, not hills, and, and gigantic trees, not 100-foot tall ones. And it, it took a while for it to grow on him, but eventually it did, and he certainly never went back to the Midwest. But I, I do feel kindred with him and that his upbringing was from the upper Midwest. Our last story is an archive from 2013, and it's another story about stories. Trevor Chow Fraser interviewed Mika Minio Palula about the oil road, a pipeline owned by BP that transports oil from Central Asia to the Mediterranean. Mika Minio Palula is the co-author of a travelogue, also called The Oil Road. journey that you described in your book, The Oil Road. Could you quickly tell us what that journey was? Yes, so the journey starts on the shores of the Caspian in Azerbaijan, and actually the oil field that we that the oil is coming from, it's wedged between Iran and Russia, and that's actually why there was a lot of pressure for the pipeline to run west. The U.S. wanted to ensure um, that the Caspian oil could be extracted and pumped um, in a direction where it wouldn't run through Russia, which would be north, south through Iran, or east towards China, and instead west um, through Azerbaijan, up into the Caucasus Mountains, which are in Georgia, and then onwards through Turkey, and then down to the Mediterranean. Um, the pipeline actually loops, bends north around Armenia. That's quite a loop. It's definitely a loop. It meant that at the time the pipeline was the world's longest pipeline, um, whereas it would have been far cheaper and more financially feasible to actually just uh, build a short pipeline south towards and through Iran, but that wasn't geopolitically on the table. Yeah, so um, so the pipeline starts in Azerbaijan, and I think in your book you spent a lot of time there. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the incredible oil wealth that Azerbaijan has received as a result of the pipeline. So yes, Azerbaijan I mean, over the last 150 years, enormous wealth has come into Azerbaijan, and most of it has come out again. Um, now, since the 1990s, since BP moved in, uh, the Aliyev regime have dominated the country and have worked very, very closely with the Western oil corporations, particularly BP. And when the plans for oil extraction in Azerbaijan from BP were on the table, then there was a lot of concern that we'd see corruption, that we'd see money going to places where it shouldn't go. And and one of the um, agreements was that Azerbaijan would set up a state oil fund, and this would ensure that money would go to um, yeah, building up alternative industries, um, also to taking care of refugees and internal uh, internally displaced people, so that the Azeria people as a whole could benefit, both in the here and now, but also in the future. However, when you actually look at the accounts of SOFAS, of the oil fund, um, every year a chunk of money is deposited, billions, sometimes 7 billion, 8 billion, and almost the same amount is taken out again and moved into the general Azeri budget. And 
a very large part of the general Azeri budget goes on policing and military. And Ilham Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, has been very proud about this, and he said the BTC pipeline will ensure that we will have a military which is many times stronger than Armenia. In fact, what he promised when he came to power was, I will ensure that our military budget is larger than Armenia's entire national budget. And that's exactly what he did. One of the things that strikes me is that um, you also described this military buildup uh, all along the oil route. And you're talking about the oil routes into, uh, through the uh, Red Sea and into the Indian Ocean, also he heavily militarized. So it's not just in the context of a corrupt state. Yes, definitely. I mean, the oil roads, as we see, as we see, there are many oil roads, whether they're over land, through pipelines, or across the sea. And they're almost invariably they're militarized. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's more hidden. Um, the zones where there's any extraction or transportation of oil have vastly higher surveillance, uh, police crawling all over the local villages. You, ask, you don't even need to ask a question. You show up and look in the wrong direction, you've got police following you, placing you under house arrest, giving, giving folks hell, you know, hassling people, people losing their jobs just because of, you know, paying some attention to what's going on. Um, that's the case in Azerbaijan, in Georgia, especially in Turkey in the northeast and the Kurdish areas. The Kurdish uh, communities regularly have to deal with police coming and hassling them, tearing up their fields, not letting people access their land. Um, allies of ours, after we've spoken to them on the phone, will immediately get a phone call from the local police station going, why are you talking to these people again? It's, a, it's, it's almost normalized the extent to which there's surveillance and, and basically violence exerted to ensure that there's um, intense control over these regions. And we see the same also at sea. Can you describe exactly what is being protected and how they're protecting it? Basically, this isn't about crude coming to Canada or coming from Canada, or to the U.S. or to Europe for that matter. Um, it's actually primarily about Mediterranean crude uh, going to East Asia and also um, uh, Arab crude coming to, to the European continent. And when those ships come past, particularly when they come close to Somalia, then especially after years of overfishing and pollution, there's a chance that uh, Somali folk on with boats will come out and will try and hijack one of those tankers. You know, they then tend to take them ashore and say, pay us a million dollars, two million dollars, and we'll release it. Now, um, the easiest way to deal with that and the cheapest way to deal with that actually would be just to pay those ransoms and keep going. But instead what we see is frigates, aircraft carriers, helicopters, drones, marines, including the um, HMCS Winnipeg from Canada, patrolling back and forth, back and forth, working with the drones, working with satellites, tracking, are there any boats in the area? And if they are, coming out and going for them and attacking them. Why do you think that Western nations are willing to sink so much money into uh, protecting these oil roads? The oil roads are seen by Western nations as part and parcel of the energy fabric that our society currently runs on. If you look at our governments, they are almost all, whether in Canada, whether in Alberta, whether in the US, whether in Britain, tied very closely with oil and gas corporations. They often think that the interests of BP or of Exxon or of Suncor are their own. If Britain sees a shell tanker getting 
problems passing off the coast of Somalia, then it will send a frigate to defend it. Now, that tanker might be taking oil from Libya to China. That doesn't necessarily, shouldn't logically necessarily be about British interests. And when Britain sends a frigate, that's a subsidy to oil. Like, if it didn't, Shell would ensure its own protection or just go a longer way around, which is entirely possible um, and not that hard. And what we see is actually now increasingly um, a lot of Western governments are putting troops on the oil tankers for free. And if you didn't, then they'd bring their own gods. So why is it Britain or Canada or the U.S.'s responsibility to defend corporate interests everywhere in the world over local populations? That was Trevor Chow Fraser speaking with Mika Miniopalula, a co-author of The Oil Road. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Aaron Carter, Christian Yin Phillips, Trevor Chow Fraser, Amanda Rooney, Shelley Jodowin, and Charlie Blay. Catch you next week for more environmental news.